Welcome to Melbourne Recital Centre's Sound Escapes podcast. How have the acoustics of buildings shaped the style of music that is composed and performed within them? Join acoustician Cameron Howe and Ensemble Gombert in this special talks event, live from Elizabeth Murdoch Hall. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming. My name's Cameron Howe, and I'm an acoustic consultant with Arup, a consulting company who, amongst other things, did the acoustics and theatre consulting for this amazing building. My background is as a mechanical engineer by degree, but I'm also a classically trained violinist, violist, and cellist, and I continue to play regularly with orchestras and chamber ensembles. Last year, I was invited by MRC to give a talk about what makes this room sound so good. How do the acoustics of a building influence what we experience and hear in a space? Those of you who went to this talk last year would have heard me talk about how there's no such thing as a perfect acoustic. That as listeners, we have a preference for what we hear for particular aspects of sound, whether it might be hearing the instruments clearly or hearing the sense of the room surrounding you with sound. This year, we're going to have a look at some of the reasons why that occurs. And one of the most simple ones is that there is so many different styles of music. So it's impossible for one room to be ideal for everything. And this should not be surprising, because the music in our standard repertoire stems from at least 500 years and covers a lot of musical trends and includes music written for some very different sounding rooms. This evening, we're going to have a look at how acoustics has shaped the very music that we play. Joined by a choir ensemble Gombert, we're going to have a look at three styles of music, church, choral music, symphonic music, and opera, and explore how space has changed sound. We most commonly experience choral music in the concert hall nowadays, but it's important to remember that it was originally composed to serve a liturgical purpose. It was either as a way of commuting a text to an often illiterate congregation, or as a way of providing an illustration or a commentary on a particular theological message. Churches are usually pretty difficult spaces acoustically. Their very size and scale generally makes them big, reverberant spaces, which in turn means that there's a lot of difficulties in communicating both text and music in the same room. Early churches adopted the Roman meeting house, or basilica, as their plan model. But over the years, architectural and engineering innovations meant that these churches could get bigger and bigger, and consequently more reverberant until by the time of the high medieval period, we got the great Gothic cathedrals with their magnificent high vaulted ceilings, and that resulted in reverberation times, i.e. the time it takes for sound to decay away in the room of more than 10 seconds. Cologne Cathedral has the longest measured reverberation time of any church, with some 13 seconds of reverberation in there. In such a space, speech communication is all but impossible over a short distance. So with such a big room, this also means there's a lot of acoustic inertia to the sounds. It takes a long time for sound to build up in these places and also a long time for it to decay away. This led to the development of plain chant, in particular Gregorian chant, as a way of communicating text in a reverberant environment via the changely, slowly changing song. The sound in these spaces is incredibly enveloping and three-dimensional because of all the interconnected aisles and chapels and so on, which result in sound base percolating through the room and returning to listeners from every direction. So even if the text wasn't always perfectly intelligible, this was of lesser importance because the service was in Latin, 
which only the highly educated would have understood. For the lay worshipper, the effect would have been emotional rather than intellectual. The experience of being surrounded in this veil of sound, an integral part of the worship. The heavy materials of these churches reflect bass sounds, while the porous or rough stonework scatters or absorbs the high frequencies, the treble. This leads to a very prominent bass in these rooms and an overall darker sound. It's very suitable for the all-male choirs. But the acoustics also perhaps affected the overall tonality of the music as well. After all, when the previous notes of your phrase are lingering on for some 10 seconds, changing keys is an invitation for dissonance. And dissonance is not something that medieval composers, or the church for that matter, liked or looked favorably upon. And so it's possible that the very simple modal harmony of this early music is not entirely due to composers not having discovered complex harmony, more that it's actually not possible or feasible to write harmonically adventurous music for these spaces. This acoustic inertia also means that shorter notes sound quieter than longer notes because they don't have time to build up to their full value. This means that a long note can remain audible even against several shorter notes, and this is what allowed composers to experiment with adding multiple voices to the chant. So rather than everyone singing in unison, you first added another voice, and then you had two voices, and then adding more and more, and eventually this resulted in polyphony, which is where there's multiple vocal parts all interweaving together. The original chant melody was usually held on the tenor line, and that's actually where the word tenor comes from, to hold as a cantus firmus, a fixed song. Polyphony became more and more complex and ornamented, and it reached one of its peaks in the music of Palestrina and the Roman school, which wrote for the Sistine Chapel and some of the other spaces around Rome and the Vatican. Many of Palestrina's works were written for the chapel, including the Stabat Mater. Please welcome to the stage choir ensemble Gombert, who are now going to sing for us Palestrina's Stabat Mater.
beautiful music for a beautiful room. However, it was over in Venice, with the works written for the Basilica San Marco, that we see one of the most impressive examples of a composer writing music that's matched to the particular acoustic of a space. St. Mark's has multiple choir lofts, which are separated by a considerable distance, almost 30 meters, which introduced a very audible delay and would have made unison singing difficult, to say the least. Composers such as Gabrielli started to experiment with using multiple choirs accompanied by multiple instrumental bands, singing music in alternation, so-called antiphonal singing, making this acoustical drawback into an effect. So the sensation of space becomes just as important as the time for the musical effect. We're going to hear a brief excerpt from Gabriele's Sonata Pianoforte, which incidentally is the first piece to use notated musical dynamics. Imagine the different instrumental groups being located in the different parts of the church. This stereo effect proved very popular, and it started to be imitated by other composers, even when writing for different spaces where it wasn't a necessity, but an effect. Allegri's famous Miserere, for example, written some 50 years after Gabrielli, has some of the singers spatially separated from the remainder of the choir, even in the relatively smaller surroundings of the Sistine Chapel. We're gonna have a listen to a brief excerpt of the Miserere, sung in the Sistine Chapel by the Sistine Chapel Choir in what is actually the first recording ever done in there. In this recording, the main choir is close to the microphone while the second choir is at the opposite end of the chapel. And so it sounds like a distant echo, precisely the kind of effect that Gabrielli pioneered. If you've heard the Miserere before, you might be thinking, but hang on, that sounded different. That's actually a recording of how it was originally composed back in the 1600s. But over the years, there's been some accretions of ornamentation due to performance tradition by the Vatican Choir. And it's worth noting here that spaces change over time, not just the music. And so hearing a venue today is not necessarily having the same acoustic conditions as it would have when the music was written. Even in a space as famous and historically significant as the Sistine Chapel, 
there have been changes over the years which have affected the acoustics. In the Renaissance, when Palestrina and Allegri were writing, the chapel was decorated with Raphael's famous tapestries, which have since been moved into the museum. So for authenticity, when the choir records these works written for that time, they bring in carpet and curtains so that the venue more closely matches how it would have sounded at the time. We're going to do the same thing in this hall now, and we're going to bring in the acoustic banners, and so you'll hear this change in the sound next time the choir sings. One big, one big factor that has changed the acoustics of churches more than anything else is the Reformation. Much of Germany and Northern Europe became Protestant, and as part of this, churches were frequently renovated, often removing a lot of the decoration that was previously there, particularly for Calvinist churches. In response, the Catholic Church launched the Counter-Reformation, which brought with it a big wave of church building, and these were built in the then-current Baroque style, which included a lot of new features, such as lots of curtains and drapery, and many wooden internal fittings, such as seating galleries, private boxes and partitions. It started to become an almost theatrical sort of arrangement for a seating. And this style was not restricted just to Catholic churches, with some of the new Protestant churches being built during the time. For example, the Frauenkirche in Dresden, which was also built in this style. All these fittings and the busyness reduce the reverberation and absorb some of the bass. And so that means that these Baroque churches had a much brighter and clearer sound compared to the older Gothic cathedrals. And this also meant that text was a lot more clear in these spaces, which is important because, at least in Protestant churches, the services were now in the vernacular language rather than in Latin. So this, coupled with a generally smaller size, means that these Northern European Protestant churches were much less reverberant. So if we have a look at some of the churches that Bach worked for, there's the Thomaskirche and the Nikolaikirche in Leipzig, and this is a painting of how it would have looked in Bach's day, or the Bachkirche in Arnstadt. In Bach's time, they would have had a reverberation of no more than about two seconds when occupied, perhaps even as low in, as 1.6 in the Thomaskirche when it was fully occupied, for example, at Easter. So this is actually a reverberation time that's much closer to our modern recital halls, such as this very room, than the stereotypical church sound that we think of. So this means that when Bach was writing organ music early in his career for the Bachkirche in Arnstadt, he could write dense contrapuntal music with harmonic complexity. If he tried to write this for a Gothic cathedral, it would have been completely lost. The shorter reverberation time in these churches also meant that harmonic modulation can occur. When sounds dying away after only a second or two, music can modulate into new keys more easily without having to contend with the ghost of the previous notes hanging around due to the reverberation. The drier acoustics of these churches also suited the requirements of Bach's text, in which the, sorry, Bach's vocal music, in which the text is generally now in the vernacular language rather than in Latin and so the intelligibility of the text became much more important. And it meant that Bach could write and reuse some of his instrumental music as part of his cantata movements. For example, arranging the famous E major prelude for solo violin into the organ sinfonia for one of his cantatas, BWV 29, celebrating the inauguration of the new Leipzig Town Council.
You can imagine such virtuosic writing becoming completely muddy and unclear if it was played in a space with too much reverberation. But in the concert hall-like acoustic of Bach's churches, it would have been a magnificent effect. Bach, too, played with the spatial arrangements in the works that he wrote. When he was writing for works for the castle church at Weimar, the musicians were actually located in the gallery at the top of the church, above. And so sound entered the church from above down through a sound hole, creating an impression of music descending from the heavens. While for the performances of the St. Matthew Passion in the Tomaskirche in Leipzig, the two main choirs were likely placed at the western end of the church in the choir lofts, but there was also a boys' choir which was placed at the eastern end of the church in what was called the swallow's nest. This resulted in an amazingly spacious effect. Imagine hearing this work where you've got the two choirs actually doing antiphonal singing like Gabrielli at one end of the church and then suddenly the boys' choir enters from behind you and so you hear sound coming from left and right and behind you. It have been a magnificent effect. In a book about Bach's music by Schering, he discusses what the acoustics of the Tomaskirche would have sounded like in Bach's day. And he notes that the sound of the choir singing came from such a great distance and from such a great height that it must have been much more ethereal. And the acoustics would have brought with it advantages for certain types of orchestration, as well as for being able to under understand the text as it was being sung. Ensemble Gombert is now going to sing Bach's double choir motet, Singet dem Herrn ein neues Lied, Sing to the Lord a new song, or at least the first movement of.
you're going to have to come back on Thursday. Thank you. So sadly, progress in the form of further renovations have actually removed much of the detail of the Tomas Kirker as it was in Bach's time. And so it's brought it back to its original Gothic state, and so unfortunately now Bach's church is no longer necessarily the best place in which to hear Bach's music. But we are fortunate that listening to Bach in a recital hall such as this room is perhaps closer to the acoustic that he envisaged. We've discussed choral music in a fair bit of depth, but other styles of music have also changed and developed in response to the acoustics of performance spaces. 
Having a look at the acoustic conditions that composers responded to can be very interesting in providing some context to their compositional approach. Although, in the words of renowned acoustician Jürgen Meyer, it's likely wrong to assume that the composers of the great masterworks consider the acoustic conditions under which they experience their performances always as optimal. But equally, there have been some examples where composers have clearly been influenced by the acoustic conditions that they were hearing. I spoke last year briefly about how Haydn, especially, adjusted his symphonic writing in response to the spaces that he was composing for. Haydn worked across several venues in his life, with most of his symphonies being composed for his employer, Prince Esterhazy, at either the castle at Eisenstadt, which is now in Austria, or else, later on, for the magnificent Baroque castle Schloss Esterhazy at Fürtet in Hungary. Later in his career, however, Haydn wrote his famous London symphonies, which were either written for the Hanover Square Rooms, which at the time was London's main concert hall. For this room, symphonies number and, sorry, 92 through to 101 were written. Or else, on his second visit, the final three symphonies, 102 through 104, were written for the concert hall that was attached to the King's Theatre, today's Her Majesty's Theatre. Unfortunately, no images of the King's Theatre Concert Hall have survived, but it was located on the street looking out over High Market above the entrance to the theatre, approximately the red rectangle on that, on that image, sorry, on that floor plan. It was described as a, a great concert room, 95 feet long, 46 feet broad, 35 feet high, and fitted up in the first style of elegance. These spaces had quite different acoustics, with the rooms at Esterhaza and Hanover Square being quite dry, with a reverberation of about 1 to 1.2 seconds, while Eisenstadt and then the King's Theatre were much more reverberant, with a reverberation somewhere around 1.5 to 1.7 seconds, which again is much closer to the acoustics of this space. We're going to have a listen firstly to one of the movements that Haydn wrote for the spacious reverberant acoustic of Eisenstadt, Symphony Number no. 22, The Philosopher. Have a listen to the slow melodic lines and the terrace dynamics. Now we're going to have a listen to one of his Sturm und Drang symphonies, Symphony Number no. 42, which was written for the Esterhaza Palace, which has sudden forte piano contrasts and a lot more rhythmic complexity. the so-called ringing pauses after forte chords and the swells in the later London symphonies, such as number 102, written for the King's Theatre.
In these late symphonies written for the King's Theatre, Haydn writes some long crescendos and diminuendos. The effect in the room would have been the sound growing from the stage, becoming three-dimensional and filling the room, and then retreating back onto the stage again. A very impressive spatial effect. This was possible because the reverberation of the King's Theatre was such that it produced this spatial effect, this immersion, from only a mezzo-forte dynamic upwards. But in some of the smaller, earlier halls, like Esterhaza, this same spaciousness, spaciousness would only occur at a forte dynamic. In the drier hall at Hanover Square Gardens, the orchestra would have to play louder just to play piano, which meant that the overall dynamic range was not as expressive. In the King's Theatre, the room reverberance supported the piano notes much more and gave a much wider contrast between the loud and the soft passages. Eisenstadt too would have had this spaciousness, but the orchestral forces at Haydn's disposal early in his career were a lot smaller than at the end, and so they weren't actually big enough or strong enough to evoke this kind of effect from the room. And so it's only in the final symphonies that Haydn really got the opportunity to show off the, his mastery of spatial effects. You can see some examples as well in Beethoven. I think it would be a mistake to say that Beethoven was writing for a particular room in mind, especially after he went deaf, but he definitely had an understanding of the effects of acoustics on his music. The Coriolan overtures, with its abrupt chords followed by bars of rests, they show that Beethoven was keenly aware of how dramatic reverberation can be. While there's the similar contrast between the sudden forte chords and the sustained legato phrases in the introduction to the Seventh Symphony. Looking at his string writing in particular, it seems that Beethoven was deliberately writing some spatial effects, and he's taking advantage of what we now call the German orchestral arrangement, where the first and the second violins are placed on either side of the conductor. There's some occasions in his symphonies where Beethoven writes a single melody, but he splits it antiphonally between the first and second violins. So first violins will play for a bar, then second for a bar, and back and forth. So this means that the sound image becomes very broad because the musical line is jumping backwards and forwards across the stage. There's a good example of this in the skirts of the Ninth Symphony, where as each instrument enters, he builds up the orchestral picture. So as each instrument enters, the sound picture moves both in pitch and also in space, and it comes from different locations on stage. And as it gets louder and louder, it becomes much more three-dimensional. be interesting to actually have a look at the rooms that Beethoven's works were premiered in. The third and the fourth symphonies were premiered in a room at the Lobkowitz Palace in Vienna that's now been named the Eroica Saal in honour. This is a room that seats only about 160 people and it's about the same size and has very similar acoustics to the salon downstairs. The seventh symphony was premiered at the University Hall which unfortunately hasn't survived but the eighth was premiered in the Redoutensaal in the Hofburg Palace, the Palace Ballroom, which, as I mentioned last year, was the template for Vienna's famous Musikverein. The other symphonies were actually premiered in theatres. The first in the Burgtheater, the second, fifth, and sixth 
in the then new Theatre an der Vienne, which had a very dry opera house acoustic, quite similar to the State Theatre here. While well, the Ninth Symphony was premiered in the Kärtnertor Theatre, the theatre at the Corinthian Gate, which has since been demolished, but is now the location of the famous Hotel Zaka. Other composers have also written some similar acoustic effects into their music. Purcell's Dido and Aeneas has an echo dance for witches where they're dancing in a cave, and each musical phrase is first heard forte and then repeated piano, as if hearing an echo come from within the cave. Schumann's Rhenish Symphony in the fourth movement, the trombones create the sonic illusion of being in Cologne Cathedral and hearing the echoing sounds of the space reverberate around you. And Mogzorski's Pictures and Exhibition has the catacombs movement, which has a very similar effect. But it's also interesting to have a look at the way that musical tastes have been influenced and developed by the concert halls themselves, and vice versa. One of the most influential concert halls and orchestras in the world is the Gewandhaus in Leipzig. Starting from a musical society of friends shortly after Bach's time, the first Gewandhaus concert hall, now known as the Alters Gewandhaus, was built in 1781, one of the first public concert halls ever. And it was the venue for the premieres of Wagner's Meistersingers Overture, Brahms' Violin Concerto, Mendelssohn's own Violin Concerto, to name just a few. The acoustics of the hall, in which one could hear the tenderest and the finest tones to the outmost distance, were from the beginning described as exemplary. However, historical reconstruction of its acoustics have shown that it was actually a really dry space, much more dry than this room, with acoustics only slightly more reverberant than a theatre. And so it's clear that the tastes of the day were for very, oh sorry, for, were for less reverberant spaces. The small size of the room, however, would have meant that the orchestra sounded very close and engaging and it would have been excitingly loud. Vienna's Musikverein was built in 1870 and it's for this room that a lot of Brahms and Bruckner's later works were written and premiered. It's currently considered the gold standard for the modern concert hall. But interestingly, at the end of the, eight, of the 19th century, the best hall in most people's opinion was the Neues Gewandhaus of 1884. Even though measurements taken in the empty room of the 1930s and subsequent reconstructions of what it would have sounded like when full show that it would have had an only a very moderate reverberation, although it would have had a very well-blended sound. It probably wouldn't have been too dissimilar to this room. But short of what we consider to be a concert hall of sound now and probably more like a recital hall. Amsterdam's Concertgebouw from 1888 is actually a scaled-up version of the Neues Gewandhaus. But the larger size to fit in a bigger seat count meant that the Amsterdam Hall also got more reverberant. And so it has a longer reverberation time of some two seconds, which is almost exactly the same as Vienna. And so it's for this type of hall that the cornerstones of the late Romantic repertoire, like the tone poems of Richard Strauss or Mahler's symphonies, were written. And it's in this type of hall that they sound best. And this type of acoustic is also the template to which we design modern concert halls, even though, as we've seen, a lot of earlier works were actually composed for a less reverberant environment. But we can't talk about how acoustics has shaped music without talking about one of the most extreme examples ever, how Wagner created an entire sound world for his operas at Bayreuth. But to get an appreciation of just how unique the Bayreuth Festspielhaus is, a quick overview of how opera house design develops will show us just how, how radical Wagner's building was and is. Opera developed from about the year 1600, and it was an attempt to recreate the blend of music and drama of Greek tragedy. 
Theatres from the late Renaissance or early Baroque, such as Palladio's Teatro Olimpico at Vicenza, were based on Greek or Roman models, but these did not guarantee good acoustics, and architects began rapidly to experiment with form. Over time, the rounded horseshoe shape established itself as the classic shape for opera houses, with many early examples being built as palace theatres, serving as entertainment for royalty and nobility. Some famous examples include the theatres at Versailles, or the Cuvillier's Theatre in Munich. This is the room that Mozart wrote his opera Idomeneo for. There's also the Schwetzigen Rococo Theatre, or the Margraveville Opera House in Bayreuth. So as you've seen, these rooms were opulently decorated, and they usually seated around 500 people, but they had quite short reverberation, only about a second. It suited the Baroque opera of the time because it's of vocal gymnastics, while the small, small size of these rooms and their raked, forced perspective stage meant that the performer was never too far away from the audience, and indeed couldn't be, because if they moved too far upstage, they ruined the perspective effect. Later on, as opera houses began to get bigger, these started to become open to the public as well, and opera became a more mainstream and popular art form. Some of these larger theatres still survive today. There's the Teatro San Carlo in Naples, La Fenice in Venice, or the famous La Scala in Milan. These rooms took the horseshoe shape of the Baroque opera house, but then scaled it up for a bigger seat count, and so they typically became a little bit more reverberant as well, about 1.1, 1.2 seconds of reverb. It's for this type of opera house that Mozart and Rossini were writing their operas. The acoustics of the old Berg Theatre in Vienna, which is the room for which Mozart wrote The Abduction from the Seraglio, Marriage of Figaro, and Cosi fan tutte, has been calculated from old drawings, about one second fully occupied, maybe a little bit over. But fortunately, there's still a Mozartian opera house that survived, the Estates Theatre in Prague. This is the room that Mozart wrote Don Giovanni for. It still exists, and it's still 1.1 seconds of reverb. So we have a trend already that Mozart, and then slightly later on Rossini, were writing for rooms that were just that little bit more reverberant than a Baroque theatre. These Italian-style opera houses mostly have seats arranged in boxes, everywhere except the stall seating and sometimes the top gallery. Boxes actually originated for a social purpose. They allowed privacy for political or romantic intrigues where needed, or by moving forward, you could put yourself on display and be seen to be seen and show off the latest fashions. But these boxes also fortuitously served an acoustic benefit. The multiple stacked balconies with their reflective balcony fronts meant that there were a lot of reflections back down to the main floor, while the box dividers themselves send sound reflecting backwards to stage and help the singers to hear themselves. As composers started to write for these newer and larger rooms, we saw the development of bel canto opera, which actually relies on having this more reverberance for achieving a blended and beautiful singing tone. And so new opera houses began to get more and more reverberant. One of the most influential and important opera houses is the Zemper Opera in Dresden, which originally opened in 1841. It was designed by Wagner's friend, Gottfried Zemper, and it was highly influential on Wagner. He was Kapellmeister in this brand new theatre from 1843 to 1848 during which time he composed The Flying Dutchman, 
Tannhäuser and Lohengrin while there. Although Lohengrin was not performed until afterwards, when Wagner and Semper had to flee Dresden as fugitives for unwisely participating in an 1848 revolution. The Zemper Opera is acoustically phenomenal, and it's rated as one of the top three opera houses in the world by most critics, on par with La Scala. At low level, it looks much like a traditional horseshoe opera house, but at the top level, it broadens out into a colonnaded gallery. And this originally had 10 rows of seating and was described by the fervent Republican Zemper as the high parterre, an indication that he viewed it as equal in status and quality to the coveted main floor seating. Zemper, as well as Wagner, believed that opera should be an art form accessible to everyone, not just the rich and famous. Although unfortunately, when the opera house was otherwise faithfully rebuilt after being destroyed in World War II, building codes forced this top gallery to be truncated to only four rows, so it's not quite as democratic as it was in Zemper's day. The secret to the Zemper opera's amazing sounds is this wide upper level, which is a little bit like a T-shape in cross-section. This upper volume allows a rich, blended, reverberant sound to develop, and then later on it descends back down into the main body of the theatre, and this gives the Zemper opera a stunning blend of clarity and richness. The reverberation time is 1.6 seconds, which is much longer than most previous opera houses, but it's perfect for late romantic opera, with their large, sonorous orchestras. Indeed, the Zemper opera also has a very special relationship with Richard Strauss. He premiered nine of his operas there, including Salome and Rosen Cavalier. The quality of the orchestral sound in particular is phenomenal, and this is one of the few buildings that works equally well as an opera house and a concert hall. So the Zemper Opera was the most influential building in terms of the sort of sound that Wagner wanted to create for his new theatre. In exile together in Switzerland, Wagner and Zemper developed a concept for a revolutionary new opera house, one that would be democratic and devoted solely to the performance of art. With the support of King Ludwig of Bavaria, Wagner finally had the patron that he needed, and so now that all that remained was a building to be devoted entirely to his artistic vision. Wagner was originally drawn to Bayreuth because of the Margraviel Opera House, which had one of the largest and best equipped stages in Europe, but the theatre itself was much too decorated and the orchestra pit too small for Wagner's requirements. And so he resolved that he would have to build his own. Despite having a falling out with Zemper in the intervening years, the finished Festspielhaus, Festival Theatre at Bayreuth, actually owes a very heavy debt to Zemper's original sketches. Inside the Festspielhaus is the unique auditorium, which is inspired by a return to the Greek and Roman traditions. The seating is arranged in an amphitheater. It's relatively undecorated by the standards of the time, almost severely so. And this is partly because of financial constraints. The budget blew out to the extent that King Ludwig had to bail out Wagner repeatedly, but also to avoid distracting the patrons by anything but the music. The room is actually rectangular, but a series of proscenium frames draw attention and focus it on the stage in a forced perspective effect. And so they make the room feel like it's triangular. This plan shape has an acoustic benefit, and then each of these recesses between the columns acts a little bit like an acoustic battery. So it captures and then releases sound slowly back, back out into the auditorium. So instead of a single sound reflection, these alcoves between the columns return a sequence of sound reflections that blend together smoothly over time and they make the room feel very rich and enveloping. The reverberation is 
again, about 1.6 seconds, so about the same as the Zemper Opera, but the tonal quality of the Festspiel House is unique and distinctive. It's dark, blended, and rich, and it's very far removed from all the, the glitz and glamour of an Italian opera house like La Scala. But the most revolutionary feature of the Festspiel House is its orchestra pit. Wagner wanted to render the mechanical source of the music invisible. And so the orchestra pit is almost completely sunken below the stage with a hood that screens it completely from view from the auditorium. This unique arrangement means that the orchestral sound is incredibly blended, but it also has the high frequency instruments suppressed and dulled, and that makes the sound acoustically distant. And incidentally, it also solves the problem of how to balance even the best voice singers against a gargantuan 130-piece orchestra. Part of this excellent balance between the stage and pit comes from the, the attack from the orchestra is being subdued and delayed by the pit. So the sound from the singer can reach listeners' ears first and uninterrupted and establishes precedence over the sound from the pit, making it sound louder, even if it's not actually louder. The result is that the orchestral sound appears to appear from nowhere. It's consistent with Wagner's theories of there being a mystic abyss between audience and stage, as if separating the mythic world of the ring from the mundane world of ordinary life. Dating from before a scientific approach to acoustics, there was naturally some serendipity at play in the room's success. The circular rear wall of the theatre would have originally led to an echo back to stage, but King Leopold wanted a balcony with a royal box in the gallery, and Wagner grudgingly accepted, but it turns out that that actually stopped the echo from occurring. The Festspielhaus is a unique space, and it's one in which Wagner's ring, which had actually been composed for more than 25 years before it was built, found, finally found its perfect acoustic home. A vital art artistic effect is given by the reverberation and the subdued orchestra combined, namely a remoteness and unity, in the words of pioneering acoustician Hope Bagenal. Here's a slightly more emot emotional description, though, of hearing Das Rheingold at Bayreuth by critif, crit, critic Joseph Vexberg from The New Yorker. Out of the darkness came the sustained E-flat, so low that I couldn't distinguish exactly where the silence ended and where the sound began. Nor could I be sure where the sound came from. It might have come from the sides of the auditorium, or the rear, or the ceiling. It was just there. Slowly, the orchestra began to play melodic passages barely audible at first, and gradually increasing in volume, until the auditorium was filled with music, the music of the water of the Rhine. The music, the singing, the waters, and the lights blended perfectly. We're going to hear a bit of that same piece, a short excerpt from the prelude to Das Rheingold, and this is recorded live in Bayreuth. This unique sound does mean it's a huge challenge for any other opera house that wishes to put on the ring, because it's not possible to replicate that unique orchestral sound anywhere else, because it's impossible to repl replicate that unique orchestral pit. As an example of that, here's the same prelude to Das Rheingold, 
but now we're going to have a listen in the Metropolitan Opera in New York, which is a room that has about the same reverberation time as Bayreuth, around 1.6 seconds. You might have heard how the sound is much more blended and mixed in Bayreuth, and there's especially a big difference in the upper instruments, the violins. This music it depicts the waters of the Rhine, and actually for the first time when I heard that in Bayreuth, the Bayreuth recording, for the first time it actually sounded like sloshing, surging water. In the Met, the violin and the flute lines are much more prominent above the rest of the orchestra, and they're more audible, but they're also more distinct. We'll have a listen again but this time we're going to do a crossfade between the two recordings. So firstly, we'll hear Bayreuth coming out from the speaker on the further side from me, and then midway through it will change and we'll hear the Met from the speaker on this side. See if you can hear the difference. Even just fitting that massive orchestra in the pit is a challenge. In order to put on the Melbourne Ring Cycle five years ago, it required a major upgrade of the State Theatre's orchestra pit. Two entire rows of seats had to be converted into an extended orchestra pit. This required a new hydraulic lift to be installed underneath, the concrete slab of the existing theatre to be cut and removed, and the new orchestra pit constructed in just three weeks, all while avoiding any construction noise impacts to the other venues at the Art Centre. It quite deservedly won an award for project management. <laughs> Modern opera house design owes to the Zemper Opera and to the Festspiel House an appreciation of the benefits of a blended and rich orchestral sound in which the orchestra and the singers are equal partners. With the aid of technology in the form of surtitles, opera houses can be more reverberant than ever before without sacrificing the text. And indeed, the Zemper Opera has been the model for some of the most successful modern opera houses, including the acclaimed Oslo and Copenhagen opera houses. Not so much so the Festspielhaus, though. With the exception of a very lavish near copy in Munich, the Prince Regent's Theatre, which unfortunately changed the very things that make the Festspielhaus work and has some significant acoustic issues, no other opera house has followed the lead of the Festspielhaus. But this should perhaps not be surprising, because the Festspielhaus is perfect for Wagner's music and Wagner's music alone. And even within Wagner's canon, it works best for the Ring and for Parzival than for the early operas, in particular Meistersingers, which actually need a little bit more clarity to do them justice. Despite this, the influence of the Festspielhaus is perhaps a little bit more present, prevalent than you might realise. Wagner was aiming to create the theatrical edifice of the future. And the Festspielhaus, more than anything else, was actually influential in the development of modern cinema. The Ring, after all, prompted the development of modern stage lighting, and Wagner was the first to insist on a darkened auditorium prior to performance, two areas that are essential for cinema. But this is appropriate after all. 
In the words of Wagnerite Stephen Fry, it's the music principally, but it's also the way in which the music works with the drama, which is quite a lot like cinema. For someone who dreamed of his works being known and accessible to all, would not Wagner have delighted his works being broadcast live on television, or the ring cycle conquering its own new territory in cinemas via things like the Met Opera's HD broadcasts, even if he did have to wait 135 years? I hope you've enjoyed even this brief musical wander through some of the ways in which music has shaped itself to fit in space over the last centuries. It certainly makes me wonder what the concert hall or opera house of the future is going to sound like as our musical tastes change. Either way, it's going to make for some interesting listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Melbourne Recital Centre's Sound Escapes podcast. To discover more about the stories behind the music, musicians and people that make Melbourne Recital Centre the best place to hear, visit soundescapes.melbournerecital.com.au. Till next time. <laughs>